When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today I have Stephen Glassby back on the podcast, and we are going to talk about one of the prospects who I found to be one of the most interesting evaluations this season, Reese Beekman of the Virginia Cavaliers. So we will certainly get into him in depth in just a moment. But first of all, Stephen, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, I'm recording with you, man. So it's a good day. You know, I'm uh, I'm happy to be back on the deep dives pod and uh, glad to be in better health. So um, it's it's nice uh, for those watching. They they heard me talk about Monday, Nick. How I shaved my mustache because I was blowing my nose a lot, and I didn't appreciate the maintenance that comes along with being sick with a mustache. You probably know, right? So um, baby face, feeling better, ready to rock. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, that's why we put the explicit tag on this podcast is to deal with you know that sort of. <laughs> Yeah, because it's just nasty talk. Exactly. Yeah. Well, not as nasty as talking about Eli Manning, but hey. Oh, let's not break it. <laughs> I just oh, I had man. to crack that can of worms open again, just just for not fun. As well. But let's not talk about controversial quarterbacks. Let's instead talk about less controversial Virginia Cavaliers. And so I want to just start off by getting your general take on Beekman. So what were your first thoughts when you sort of dug into the tape for Reese Beekman for this article? Well, I really didn't come at it as someone who was a, a big fan of his coming into the years. Not like I was against him or anything like that. He just wasn't really a, a, a priority watch for me. And my initial film dive on him when I was looking through, you know, hundreds of prospects getting ready for the upcoming cycle really wasn't blown away by him. And, uh, you know, sometimes, Nick, whenever we take on these writing assignments and we Roger up for a uh, a prospect, sometimes it's best to come in and want to write about a prospect that you got a bunch of questions on. Sometimes I feel like it's, it's tempting to write about your favorites because, you know, you're bringing a lot of enthusiasm and joy and you want to hype them up. But sometimes writing about a guy like a, like a Reese Beekman can really open up your eyes to some areas that you might have been unaware of and that's ultimately what I walked out of the the writing assignment with, but really wasn't um, probably like one of my favorite prospects coming into the assignment, but I'm ultimately, ultimately glad that I did write about him. So I wanted to start off by talking about the Bartorva query that you put very early on in yeah. the piece, because this was something that was really interesting to me. You know, on the one hand, there are a lot of qualifiers in there, you know, yes. which, you know, granted there's, I don't know, it's a fine line, I think, between when you're talking about these kind of stats, it's a fine line between cherry picking and this is actually a really interesting amalgamation of traits in yes. a player. And I definitely lean more on that side with Beekman. I mean, I have talked ad nauseum on this particular podcast about my belief in steal rate and block rates and how they've mm -hmm. historically translated to the NBA and, you know, it's one of the defensive metrics that you really can project from college or, say, EuroLeague, G League night, non-NBA level to NBA level. So that was, I think, a really, you know, important query to have in there. And it really says a lot about Beekman's defense. But, you know, the other parts of the query show that he's someone who isn't just, you know, a lot of offensive players who have a dramatic load on that end of the floor, you know, kind of take possessions off on defense. I don't yeah. want to name names, but you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that has been discussed and it's a phenomenon that's been discussed for good reason. But, you know, with Beekman, you're seeing someone who is just putting up effort in all areas of the game. You know, he's someone who passes the ball really well. He's someone who works his tail off on defense. He's someone who can really shoot the ball it's a really interesting sort of group of traits that you have here. And I think it's really worth discussing for, you know, the Beekman 
for Beekman and sort of his potential in the long term. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter's walking in. I'm, I, I'm oh, no say, worries. I was telling her good night. Sorry. Kid-friendly podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, there you go. Hey, wholesome <laughs> family content here. Yes, yes. But anyway, no, I just thought it was interesting when you ran that query that he's someone who pops in so many different areas. You know, it's not just that he's successful on one end of the floor. It's that he's someone who can do multiple things out there. And that's something, it's a trait that I tend to, I don't want to say overvalue, but a trait that I do tend to overvalue in prospects, you know, not just being spectacular at one thing, but Mm -hmm. being really good at a bunch of different things, you know, finding a bunch of different ways to contribute to your team's rotation. Yeah. And Nick, the reason, um, you know, I I listed all these different fields when I ran this Bartorovic query, um, one, I kind of like to start out with a prospect and see what they're spectacular at and kind of work my way back from there. Um, Sometimes I come in there with like a a model that I have generated based on previous draft picks and try to figure out who fits the bill. And ultimately I ran both. And the reason I came up with these fields and I posted them in this article um, and I could read through them if you want, but ultimately I wanted to go off of a player who was um, used obviously at a substantial role, right? Like you're, you're going to play a significant role in your college team or Euro league ignite overtime elite, whatever the case may be. Typically you're going to have a high, um, high usage role if you're going to get selected. Right. So then from there, I started looking at how efficient are you on the floor and whether you're a creator, whether you're a finisher, a floor spacer, all these different, you know, scenarios that a player or prospect might be, how efficient are you in that role? So that's where like the usage percentage, true shooting percentage come in. Nick, you talked about how um, blocks and steal percentage typically translate pretty well to the to the NBA. One role that or excuse me, one field that surprised me when I started doing like this deep dive on analytics and historically speaking, like what players have translated the, the best out of college to the NBA it doesn't even really matter the position, even, even a guard will have a high, you know, rebounding rate. And so that's something that stuck out to me. So when I'm looking at these prospects, I'm also interested in how they attack the glass as well. Um, For a guard turnover percentage is obviously a good indicator for decision-making and then free throw rate. Like how effective are you at putting pressure on the defense, whether you're a high, you know, top shelf athlete or you're a slippery ball handler, you know, how effective are you at putting pressure on the defense and creating extra points for, for your team, right? And then obviously, as a guard, you got to be able to spread the floor. So three-point percentage come in here. So I'm with you that there's a lot of fields on here, and he's good at a lot of them, but he's also really high-functioning in some of these areas, pointing to that, like, um, specific skill that does translate to the NBA. So that's why I ran all these different categories in in the article. And Nick, what was interesting to me is he was in a class of his own whenever I ran this query. And in order to make NBA players beat his standard, I had to either omit fields or lower them. And then I started getting some high-end rotation players. Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, on the one hand, it's a very large query with a ton of fields in it. On the other hand, yes. you know, these are pretty simple stats, right? It's not like, okay, true suiting percentage between 57.3% and 58.2%. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's steal rates, block rates, rebound rates, you know, assist yeah. rates, turnover rates. It's not, you know, there's a difference between cherry picking and just, no, he's actually just really good across all these different areas in a way that, again, as you said, you have to drop queries for other people to show up on the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and that's the sorry. thing, too, is, you know, um, when when I dropped these, I started the, – the quality of players is what really stood out to me, too, Nick, is that when I dropped these, you start seeing names like DeLon Wright, John Conkar, Jeremy Lin, Kyle Anderson. And for the for the listeners and the viewers, you might be thinking, okay, like, where's the, the Steph Currys? Where's the, you know, um, Anthony Davises of the world? Well, when you're looking at a player like Reese Beekman – He's obviously not going to be, you know, Damian Lillard or John Morant, but what he could be is a high functioning rotational player. And based on where we as a collective at No Ceilings recently put him, you could do a heck of a lot worse than a Kyle Anderson in the mid to late second round range. And that's really what kind of stood out to me when I started looking at projecting his NBA role. 
So I definitely do want to circle back to sort of the projections here with Beekman, because I think this is a very interesting class for him to be a part of for a variety of different reasons. But I do just want to circle back quickly to say, first of all, no DeLon Wright slander will be tolerated on this podcast at any time, ever, none. I just, you know, I I wasn't saying that you were, I'm just, you know, putting it out there for the record so that the listeners are aware. Listeners are aware that if you thought that Steven was not, complimenting DeLon Wright fully by saying he's not Steph Curry. That's that's not how it works here. We do not tolerate DeLon Wright. Hey, man, look how the Wizards performed without him, and when he came back, like how much more successful they've been. So, I mean, you got to have DeLon Wrights on your team. You really do. And that's, you know, again, we will circle back to this, but that's where I find it fascinating to evaluate Beekman as opposed to some of the other players in this class who – you know, maybe have more potential upside, but haven't really proven as much as Reese has. And I do want to transition from that to talking about his playmaking. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I think it's a huge part of the game for Beekman as someone who's not, you know, he's sort of combo guard-ish, but yeah. he's got really excellent playmaking instincts. And given that he's 6'3", I think that, you know, him being able to move the ball really well is going to be a huge part of him getting on the court. And that's a skill that he has shown in spades. Yeah. And and that's the thing too, is that with Virginia, they run a very uh, inefficient offense where it's more like Eagletarian style offense, where everybody's expected to be able to contribute and move the rock. Reese Beekman isn't going to be a particularly ball dominant style player. And that reflects in his usage and uh, minutes percentage, even on this current on his team right now. Um, but the the playmaking is there, and we talked about this a little bit on Draft Deeper, Nick, where some particular pick and roll opportunities or plays, looks, what have you, a lot of those are practice, particularly the pick and roll, hitting the roller with a bounce pass, even the lob. High field players can do so much more than that out of the pick and roll. They can look for cutters. They can pull back and reset the offense. They're aware of a popper, and they're also aware of rotational players, uh, or excuse me, players rotating along the wing and being able to hit them as they're going towards the rim. So high field players can do that. I feel like Reese Beekman is somewhere in between where he's not really like a stationary ball handler sounds weird, but like he's not a very rigid ball handler to where he can only make a couple of looks. But I wouldn't necessarily classify him as a high field player either. He's very... uh, he works through his progressions really well. And some of the plays that I outline in this, uh, Nick, he does hit pick and pop passes, pick and roll, passes to corners, dump off passes. Like he understands where his teammates are, but I wouldn't necessarily put him up there with the, you know, top pick and roll playmakers of this class. But he makes smart reads, uh, doesn't turn the ball over very much. And even still, as I'm describing him, he might sound underwhelming, but he's a very smart ball handler who does give you five assists per game for what that's worth in ACC play, which which should say something, right? Like, he's not going to wow you with, you know, your Amen Thompson level passes or anything like that, but he you can trust him as a ball handler, and he's a very steady, uh, heady playmaker. It's interesting because a lot of what you're saying sounds very similar to me to discussions that Tyler Metcalf and I had on this podcast last season about Alondis Williams and Iverson Molinar are the two guys who I think of first with that, where with Alondis Williams, you know, he was actually closer to the five assist range that Beekman was in, but he also committed way more turnovers than Beekman did per game. And that's because he just tried some of the wildest passes. And, you know, a lot of the time it was awesome to see Alondis just slinging the ball around everywhere and, you know, side note, really hope someone picks him up after the Nets cut his two-way. But, yeah, you know, the weird. difference between – that was weird, yes. But the difference between Alondis Williams and Iverson Molinar is Molinar didn't quite have as many assists, but he was someone who you could always rely on to make the right choice. You know, he wasn't yep. going to make the next-level cross-court pass necessarily, but he was going to hit the guy on the dump-off. He was going to hit the guy on the pick-and-pop. He was going to, you know – make the post-entry pass to the big. He was not going to make mistakes. And Beekman feels a lot more like that than he feels like sort of the wild child, Alondis Williams passing game. And, you know, you can think of, you know, different examples for either of those two archetypes. But, you know, there is sort of a difference between like a quote-unquote caretaker point guard versus, you know, someone who's going to make the next level passing reads. And Mm -hmm. Beekman is definitely someone who I trust to run a calm and competent offense when he's out there. Maybe not make the flashiest plays, but 
make all the plays he's supposed to make, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, if we can bring this back to our Eli Manning, I'm just kidding. Um, but <laughs> bring it back to some of the players that we discussed earlier that popped up in the queries that I ran. I mean, DeLon Wright, John Conkar, Jeremy Lin, Kyle Anderson. Like Jeremy Lin at his peak um, Lin Sanity days, he could do almost anything with a basketball. But if you look at, you know, his total career, even looking at college, um, some of the other stops that he made, Kyle Anderson, like these are all guys that you can trust to make the right reads. And you have to have that in the NBA, right? Like you have to have guys you could put in the rotation alongside other starters or even leading a second unit that you can trust to be, you know, to hold down the fort while your starters are getting rest. And again, probably doesn't sound super overwhelming of a prospect, but ultimately like these are the types of players that play seven, eight, 10, 12 years in the NBA. And again, if you're looking at a second round level prospect, like you could do a heck of a lot worse. And again, Beekman has been in the system for years. And Nick, something I want to point out that um, was even commented on the article. And I even had some people hit me up on Twitter as well, talking about his injury that he had sustained this year. And he's playing through one. And that might be some of the reasons why he's not looking as explosive or as athletic. All fair points. But looking you know, I still have to assess what I'm seeing on the court, right? Like even with injuries, still want to assess what I'm seeing. And if he is able to make this level of plays while playing through an injury for his team, um, coming back with a little bit more quicker step, he might look a little bit more flashy, but ultimately again, you know, rotational uh, point guard that you can put in at any moment in the game can trust uh, that you can trust can help sustain a lead, if not add on to it. That that's the type of point guard that I want to trust. And there's even more to his game other than just the playmaking, which is what I think will help him stand out even more at the next level. So we'll definitely get into the rest of his game shortly, but that is an excellent point that I do want to just circle back to quickly. Sure. You know, you're willing to take a lot more risks if you're healthy as a player. You know, it's like Absolutely. if you're not a hundred percent sure that, you know, you're feeling all the way there. You're not going to, you know, try the crazy fling. You're just going to be like, okay, you know what? Make a simple play. You know, don't try to put too much flash on it, especially given, you know, the way he puts in effort on the defensive end. I could totally see him being like, you know what? I'm just not going to take the risk here. You know, my, my arm's not feeling great. I'm not going to take the risk or, you know, my ankle's not feeling whatever it is. Right. Yeah, I mean, ankle. it's mm -hmm. different for different players, but it's a lot easier to, take risks when you feel confident that your body's all the way there, as opposed to, you know, feeling like you're sort of trying to play through, tough it out, grit it out, but, you know, maybe not necessarily being as fully confident in your body to make the kinds of flashier plays that, you know, maybe people would hope for once he's healthy. Yeah. And, and that's the thing too, Nick, is that not only is there the injury and he's playing on a team that wants to compete at a high level, but even you know, Virginia's non-conference games, like they played teams like Houston, who's one of the top teams in the in all of college basketball. So even his non-conference games, there was really no matchups against like whoever the F State, um, shout out Albert and Corey. Um, there's no matchups against these whoever the F States to where he might get a little cute or anything like that. And again, with injury, especially the lower body one, you're not able to cut, you're not able to plant, you're not able to explode off of any um, sort of uh, – pivots or anything like that it's really hard to want to do more than ultimately what your body will allow you to do and he, he's playing within himself and there's a heck of a lot worse things than a player can do than play within his own capabilities so let's now move on to the rest of his offense as you mentioned earlier and starting things off with the shooting for Beekman now this is the kind of thing where my partial free throw true thing screed that I've done <laughs> basically every single episode of deep dives comes into play. Yep. Cause with Beekman, I mean, you're seeing his three point percentages jump pretty massively. I mean, from 24% his first year to 34% last year to 48.6% so far yeah. this year. And that percentage is wildly impressive, of course. But you know, the other thing is, he took one and a half threes per game his freshman year. He took just under two threes per game his sophomore year. And now he's at two and a half threes per game, which, yeah. you know, especially given the wild percentage he's hitting them at, I think he could be well served to up that attempt volume. But, you know, part of that is, you know, him playing within the flow of the offense, him not being the kind of player who's going to hunt out and jack up wild three point shots. 
But, you know, the other thing with Beekman is, you know, again, the free throw shooting, right? He was 76% his freshman year, 76% his sophomore year, 81% so far this year. And, you know, he's actually one of the rare players who's taken more threes than free throws. So my usual sample size thing isn't as relevant here. But, I mean, the fact that he was shooting 76% his first two years and now is, you know, above 80%, that's a really solid indicator of touch to me. And when you combine that with his improved three-point shooting, you know, it seems like the kind of thing that might be more sustainable than, say, what I the well I always go back to of the Derek Williams principle, right? Of You know, you yep. get one hot shooting stretch and all of a sudden you're thought of as a 40% guy. I don't think Beekman necessarily is like a 40% guy long-term, but I think that the improvement that he's shown this season makes me much more confident that he can be high 30s rather than mid 30s or even sub 30% like he was his first season in Virginia. Yeah, and the, and the shooting is really kind of what I think is going to make or break his evaluation because we, we, talked about, we talked about the playmaking, and although I think that he's a capable playmaker – Ultimately, in the NBA, like there's teams that they just they're set at ball handlers. You know, there's teams that got two, three. There's teams that got these jumbo, you know, jumbo ball handlers. So these smaller guards have to be able to open the floor for those initiators. Right. And so we're talking about a guy who with increased volume has increased efficiency like that checks a lot of boxes for a lot of people. And Nick, I would like to say that this article is probably my most fair that I've written this year because. I talk about, I speak glowingly of his, you know, the improvements that he's made as a shooter um, in terms of volume and how fantastic he is. I mean, and if you do look through the synergy numbers, you're, it'll probably make you blush, but the, the form and the mechanics, I'm not a shot doctor, although I play one on the podcast here. Um, <laughs> Compared and, to me, you definitely are. I'll say that. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it, but the mechanics are kind of weird to me because it seems very regimented. Um, I wouldn't classify him as a movement shooter, which um, as a 6'3", potentially uh, guard in the NBA, if you're a stationary shooter, that kind of limits your role. And if you look at it, it's a very it's kind of like a push shot in front of his face. Um, he doesn't get like the highest lift on it either, although I think that it's uh, sufficient. But at the end of the day, I said this on Draft Deeper, is that, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, Kevin Martin. There you go. I was Sean just about Mar- to say Tyrese. Yo, Sean Mary. Like, there are some shots out there that if you are a shot doctor, you know, you're writing prescriptions for these players, right? And saying, <laughs> please take two of these and call me tomorrow, right? Um, at the end of the day, though, they some people just don't like medicine and they're going to keep doing what they do. And they can be efficient at it, man. And that's exactly what Reese Beekman is doing. Um, despite the, the amount of time I feel like it takes him to get a shot off, it's very efficient. It's getting in at a very, very, very high rate. And I think, too, that this Virginia, the the composition of this roster at Virginia really kind of translates to the NBA very well, in my opinion, because he's playing next to a another guard in Armand Franklin who can cut, who can dribble, who can do a lot of things, who could put a tremendous amount of pressure on the rim. K.A. Clark, kind of the same thing, albeit he's a smaller guard and he's a little bit more of a chucker. Um, he's playing next to guys like Ben Vanderplas and Jaden Gardner, who are kind of versatile forwards who look to spread the floor. And then, you know, Caden Shedrick is a uh, lob threat waiting to happen. So all of those kind of player profiles translate to the types of players that he'll play with at the next level, albeit they're going to be higher level at that same player profile. If he can keep doing what he's doing at his, you know, in his role and um, his position, I, I mean, it's going to be hard to knock the – the form too much if he's shooting you know 36 to 40 percent on decent on decent volume while being able to be a connective style guard on the on an nba team so even though you stole my thunder with her bit i'm really glad that you brought up tyrese halberton because i think he's the perfect player to make the analogy for here the biggest issue for a lot of people with tyrese halberton's shooting form was okay sure but can he do it off the dribble you know, yeah. it's like, OK, sure, if you you know, if he's wide open and he's got time to load up on the wing, great. But can he do it off the dribble? And, you know, as you mentioned with Beekman, that will be a huge factor in determining his NBA future. But, you know, the other thing that you brought up, which I think is critical for Beekman is, you know, you mentioned his ability to 
be someone who can, you know, be a point guard off the bench or be someone who can, you know, play alongside other guards in a starting lineup or deeper in a rotation. Right. And that I think is, that I think is the key for Beekman is Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, he's got a baseline level of playmaking skill. He's got a baseline level of shooting skill. And of course we'll get into the defense, which is really, really solid, Mm -hmm. but you know, he just has so many different roles that he can fill for a team essentially. Right. Like, you want someone who's going to be a three and D guard who's basically just a spot up guy off the bench who you you know throw on the opposition's best offensive player for fifteen minutes a game. He can do that. Yep. You want someone who you can bring off the bench as a backup point guard and basically just be like, okay, you know, don't mess things up until the main guy gets back in here. Which <laughs> yep. you know, Delon Wright has basically made a career out of that. You know, Reese Beekman could do that too. And the fact that he you know has these multiple different avenues makes it easier to see him finding a home in the NBA, right? Because, you know, if one team wants him to be a backup point guard, another team wants him to be a 3 and D, you know, maybe a bit undersized for a pure wing, but, you know, 3 and D, 2 slash 3, you know, he's got a bunch of different avenues that he can take to make it to the NBA. And I think you're absolutely right. The shooting will really be the determining factor because if that shot stays, you know, in the high 30s to low 40s, I think he's an NBA player. If it doesn't, I think the path becomes a little more difficult. Yeah, and... Again, he's the type of player that where you want him to play only within his role and not heap on more than than need be. And going back to the Tyrese Halliburton comparison, the thing about Halliburton is is positionally he has tremendous size, right? So uh, those errors, although they were present, are mitigated slightly, right? Because he has the height of eye advantage and uh, was a tremendous ball handler and, and great vision as well, right? Where Beekman, good vision, good ball handler, slightly smaller uh, measured at six, three. And I even kind of write in the piece that that's a very generic point guard height in college basketball. Right. So the, his measurements um, when he does, if he does decide to come out this year, those are probably going to be one of the more anticipated measurements for a second round player, potentially even late first based on where some outlets are starting to kind of have him trend toward. Um, And we'll talk about the defense, but your frame in the NBA, if you're not pushing like 200, 210 pounds at that guard spot, you could be a really sound defender, but at the end of the day, you're probably still going to get picked on a little bit on that side of the ball. But, I mean, we're Nick, we're talking about a guy who's in the 95th percentile and catch-and-shoot opportunities at the time that I wrote this article, and in the 100th percentile in guarded catch-and-shoot opportunities too, right? So despite yeah, him being hard to do much bit, better than that. Yeah, I mean, 100, 110%, you can't you can't get up there, I guess. But um, ultimately, the, the frame and the level of competition that he's played both outside the ACC and inside it at that guard spot has met some challenging matchups and didn't seem to really hamper him, even being injured. So some, some glowing things that you can say about what he's doing this year. There definitely are, but... As you said earlier, you thought that this might have been the most honest piece that you've written this year. So let's touch on the negatives with his offense. And really the big one that you brought up is his ability to attack the rim. And that is a major concern for me. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, I think I would have him a lot higher if he was better at that. But expecting him to be a potential backup point guard at the NBA level requires that he put at least a little bit more pressure on the rim than he does. And I mean... I touched on it earlier, but, you know, the fact that he's taken more three-pointers than free throws in his college career is a very concerning sign that he doesn't really get into the paint, doesn't really get to the rim that well. His two-point percentage this year has also fallen off dramatically. He was at 49% from two-point range last year, and he's down to 40.5% on two-point field goals this year. And, you know, the rest of his game, I really like the defense, I think, will be enough to at least get him a look, but... He really just needs to get better at finishing around the rim. And part of that is, you know, strength, as you mentioned, he's not got the heaviest, you know, thickest frame as it were, Mm -hmm. but that's really the major concern for me. I'm not all that worried about his defense. I think he's probably not a 48% three point shooter, but I definitely buy into the shooting improvement, but his ability to get to the rim and finish around the basket is something that he will need to do at a higher level to stick around in the NBA. Yeah, and again, pointing to the injury, um, a lot of people when they did um, comment to me on this on this piece, and again, I greatly appreciate the people who have dialogued with me on this one. 
um, one of my more interactive pieces I've put out so far, they, they pointed out that the attacking probably has to do with the injury. And while I would agree it has a probably a significant amount to do with the percentage drop, um, even looking Pat in, in previous years, right, um, he doesn't really necessarily seem to do well around contact. You know, um, he, he typically dies on screens. Um, whenever he's challenged at the rim, there's only so much that he can do because he's not really an above-the-rim player. And the thing, too, about guards, and if they start sustaining these ankle or lower body injuries in college, you know, that's something that NBA teams are going to be concerned about, specifically because if you're struggling to finish at this level, although the floor spacing is better, so is the rim, you know, deterrence at the next level as well, right? And the on-ball defenders that you're going to be facing at the guard spot. So, he has had some pretty nice finishes. I mean, one of the one of the plays that I put was against uh, Michigan. Sorry, Metcalf, but um, there was one where he drove in and dunked on guys, right? So I don't think that anyone would look at this piece and say, "But he's injured," you know, when he's able to finish like this. So it leaves a little bit to be desired whenever you um, see in later pieces where he's going up against North Carolina, other teams like that, where. Amrana Paycott is a pretty imposing big man, right? Um, other players on that team as well with Nance. He does not do well when he's getting a little bit more um, beefed up, and he's going to unfortunately face some high and level defenders at the next level and no shortage of athletic, strong big men either. So like you said, Nick, that's, that's a down check. But again, with the jumbo initiators or other initiators that are likely to be on whatever team that he goes to, Spacing the floor might be enough to offset that and his defense as well. So I hope to see that. But, yeah, to to speak to the point about being fair, I felt like I did have to include the attacking because it is a concerning area of his game. So let's lighten things up then and move along to his defense. And yes. this is the part of his game that's impressed me the most, mostly because I'm not 100% sure that his three-point percentage is going to be in the high. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be in the high 40s. I'm not 100% sure it's going to be in you know the low 40s, high 30s. But what I am very confident in is that his defense will translate, and you know the size will be an issue, especially against bigger you know guards, maybe even wings. I think that because of the size, if you're going to have him you know as someone to check wings, it's going to need to be a couple years down the line. But I mean, you know, the flip side of it is that you know he's someone who generates turnovers he you know gets out in transitions with his steals he you know helps keep other teams in check with his shot blocking which is you know really solid for a guard especially and that's i think you know really the main thing with beekman is i don't think that you know he can fall that much farther in the knee as on my board right now because of how good he is on yeah. the defensive end of the floor and you know that turnover generation is really the place to start for that with me well, yeah, and the turnover generation comes off of just – he's got the foundation to be a good straight-up defender as well. His court awareness that I, I spoke about on offense, I feel like he sees the floor even better on the defensive end, right? There there were plays that I highlighted um, in, against the matchup against Illinois. And, again, shout-out to, to Virginia for their out-of-conference schedule that, that they decided to submit because looking at teams like Michigan, Baylor, Illinois, like that's no cakewalk yeah. in – Against against Illinois, there was a particular play where he's away. He's guarding, you know, Terrence Shannon Jr. on the opposite end of the court while, you know, Sky Clark, RJ Melendez, and Coleman Hawkins are running like this murderer's row of handoffs and DHO sets. And while all this is taking place, you see Beekman just kind of slowly creeping. And, and as soon as he sees Coleman Hawkins receive the ball all the way on the opposite end of the court, knowing that he's going to face up and see if he can find somebody open for a cut, by the time the ball touches Coleman Hawkins' hands, like Beekman is over there intercepting it and running the ball down the court for an offensive opportunity. So if him spacing the floor as a shooter and on the defensive end, you can trust him to help create extra possessions for your offense, again, that might negate whatever concerns you have about him scoring on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. I watched that Virginia-Illinois game to scout Coleman Hawkins, but – I came away from the game incredibly impressed with Beekman. And I think part of that is that was basically his, you know, his second best game of the season in terms of like getting the rim, getting fouled, getting the line. Yep. I mean, six of eight from the free throw line, four of nine from two point range is not all that impressive, but I mean, you know, he's only taken, 
more attempts than that inside the arc one time so far this season. And that was when he went five for 10 against Armando Bacot and UNC. So, yep. you know, I think part of the reason that I was so impressed with him in that game is because he did pretty well at the things that he struggled with outside of that game. But, yep. you know, the defense is something that is, is always there for him, you know, whether it's one of his more impressive games in terms of the offense or when it's a game when he's struggling, he still puts in that effort on the defensive end. Yeah, and I mean, you you can always rely on him to to be a sound defensive player. And since he's one of the, you know, more trusted upperclassmen on this team, that carries a lot of weight for Virginia. I mean, it does every year. Virginia always cares about defense, right? And they have a very unique approach for defending the pick and roll. But that's only because they have players like Reese Beekman who you can trust to guard up and down the rotation as well. I mean, bringing in a guy like Kia Clark on – in a rotation where you're kind of having Beekman defend wing players, it's because he is such a sound man-to-man defender. I mean, going up against a guy like Terrence Shannon Jr. against Illinois and, and putting him in cuffs in a number of possessions, I mean, there's some people that are really high on him as a potential first-round pick. You, you know, Nick is Not first-round, first but I am high on him. <laughs> there's people that like him in the first-round territory. There's people like him in the there second. There are. And there are people who – don't have him in there, but still respect the the type of player that he is, especially by being able to put pressure on the rim. And yeah. the, the size advantage that Terrence Shannon Jr. has against, you know, our, our guy is sizable. But again, you know, Beekman does such a tremendous job keeping his feet, you know, constantly sliding. He's never really in a bad stance. And he understands how to use angles to his advantage, whether that be to kind of escort a guy to a baseline or the rim, or to wall them off completely and have them pick up their dribble and if he's not forcing a turnover. So the amount of ways that he could be an impactful defender seemed endless, and diving into the film, it was really encouraging to see that. So I'm curious because I think that a huge part of his NBA potential would, you know, again, I've said this already, but, you know, the number of different ways that he could work his way into a rotation, I think the you know, easiest of those to project is, you know, him as a defense first type of guy. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on Beekman guarding bigger players, because he's had some success. I mean, you mentioned Terrence Shannon Jr., right? But Mm -hmm. I think that it'll be a lot easier for him to find an NBA home if teams think of him as a one through three defender rather than, you know, he's too small, stick him on guards, guards only. And I mean, you know, the size argument, sure, but you know, I've watched quite a bit of Davion Mitchell, who is two inches shorter yeah. than Reese Beekman. You know, Marcus Smart just won Defensive Player of the Year. He's maybe an inch taller than Reese Beekman. And with Smart in particular, I mean, he's just built like a fire hydrant, and Reese Beekman is not. That's but, a one. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but I am curious about what you think about his ability to defend threes in the longer term, because I think that would be huge if he can get there, but I'm not totally confident myself. I agree with you on both accounts, man. Like it would obviously be tremendous. Uh, I just, I ultimately like what I'm about to say is what NBA front offices, scouts, executives are all going to have to come to their own conclusion on is like, do I want to invest more than like a mid to second round pick on a guy And, and some outlets have priority second round grades on them and you could get tremendous value in that range. I mean, just ask Indiana, right? I don't know if Beekman can guard more than two positions. And I would even kind of be concerned on, depending on the matchup, if he can even guard two. Um, his, Like I said, his measurements at the combine are probably going to be one of the more anticipated ones for teams that are looking to do something in the second round. Because if he does measure at 6'3", and he does measure at a favorable weight, and he does show that he can... Um, coming back from injury, still possess, you know, a high level of athleticism relative to what we've seen for him. Maybe they can talk themselves into that. But based on what I've seen, I would be more um, concerned about the ability to guard three. And he could probably guard ones and twos. And with that being said, even rookie, even strong rookie defenders struggle to some extent at the next level, right? So. Based on what I've seen, I would be concerned that he would even be like a slightly above average defender at the next level. But that being said, he can still improve as he gets old. And he's got 
the shooting ability and he's got the connective tissue ability on the offensive end that could give him the ability to see the floor while he does improve his strength and his defensive versatility. So let's get into the nitty gritty of the projection details. So I'm just going to say I have him at 51 on my board right now. That feels too low, but the reason that I have him at 51 and the reason that I want to bring up another point that was, you know, touched on in the comments of the article, but I have him at 51. And the main reason for that is that I think this is a really deep garden wing class. And I think that it's less of a statement about him than it is about the guys ahead of him. So, you know, I think the question of whether or not he should return to school is pretty reliant on that. I think that next year is going to be a slightly weaker crop. He's going to have less competition He's also going to be the main guy. Kihei Clark is not going to be there anymore, which presumably means that the ball would be in Reese Beekman's hands a lot more if he returns to Virginia. So I'm curious for your thoughts on that, because my go-to with this is if you're guaranteed a first-round pick, it's never worth it to return to school. You might get hurt, and that money might vanish in an instant. You might have a bad year, and that money might vanish in an instant. So if you're going to go in the first, I think it's always, almost always worth it for a player to declare like literally the one counter example that I can think of off the top of my head is Jaden Ivey. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, he just shot really terribly his freshman year and then came back his sophomore year and shot much better. And everybody's like, Oh wow, this is not someone who should be end of the first round type guy. Like he struggled during his freshman season and that's sort of the deal here. But Beekman is a very different case, right? You know, he's a junior yeah. who has a couple of years of solid production at Virginia under his belt, but if he returns to school, then he's someone who probably will see a lot more of the ball in his hands. The counter argument, though, is if a huge part of the reason for his stock jumping up is because of the three-point shooting, if mm-hmm. that takes a dip after he returns to school, then the question is, is he you know, someone who's going to get drafted at all? So I think that he's probably better off returning unless he has a really hot close to the season. But, you know, if he gets to the point where he's pretty consensus end of the first round guy, I think it's a pretty clear jump for him. But I'm curious where you have him on your board and what your sort of thoughts are along those lines of whether he should stay or make the NBA lead. Yeah, I'm similar range than you. I believe that when I submitted my board for our most recent big board, which is available on NoSeilingsNBA.com, I had him at, I want to say, 60. So, oh, wow. And okay. so... Again, the thing that I lay out in my piece, Nick, is that he was nowhere to be seen on anybody's board coming into the year. And he's just kind of been like a chronic riser, right? Like where it's slow increment, slow increment, slow increment to where now there's some people, like I said, Nick, there's outlets out there that project him as a priority second. And for a player like Beekman, I might say stay if the evaluation overall lines more with that than where Mine is right now, and I don't have any sort of ceiling or door shut in his face to where he can't get even higher, right? Like, the fact that he's on my board now speaks to the amount of work that he's put in right now. And there's some players that I genuinely really enjoy watching that are behind him right now. So um, I think that if it – one, he should test the waters, right? Like, I'm all for players going and testing the waters, and he he might be a Portsmouth guy. He might get, like, real combine – looks test the waters see what nba teams think about you i don't medical is kind of always tricky like if if people want to share that and if you don't like nba teams might not want to risk it at your size and your position but there's also nick the risk that that you said to where if you come back you better be sure of yourself and you know there's players that it's worked out for great you know you mentioned one in ivy benedict mather and it worked out well for him Um, And there were people that liked him as a freshman, too. So it's always a roll of the dice. I would even say, though, for for Beekman here, that if he gets a good second round promise, like and there's a bunch of teams that have multiple, like if Boston is like, dude, we love you, we would we would definitely take you in the second. If you stay, it might be worth it for him because there's not that guarantee, even if the class is weaker, that he's going to be another year older. He's going to be another class up and just being a senior is going to knock him down. Some people's board, probably not mine. He would probably be higher up on my board next year. Nick being honest with you, but 
if there's people that value him in that high second round range, man, like it might be worth it for me. Yeah, that's that's the tricky part is the priority second discussion yeah. is, you know, I mean, if he ends up where he is on our boards, right, he's either very end of the second round or undrafted. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, especially given that he's almost certainly going to get a bigger role at Virginia next season where, yeah. you know, in particular, if the injury was something that was, you know, making it harder for him to drive to the rim effectively, then, you know, another season he comes back, he has the ball in his hands a lot more. You know, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that if he comes back, he's like an end of the first round or maybe even earlier than that in the first round guy. And if you're talking about that versus, you know, being an end of the second round guy, I think it's definitely worth it for him to go back. But, you know, really the biggest reason not to go back is, you know, something you mentioned, the injury concerns, right? Like I'm not going to know his medical, you know, spoiler alert. I do not yeah. know the re-speaking to medical, but <laughs> he's playing through it for what it's worth. So obviously there you go. it could be worse, right? Yeah. But you know, the thing is like, if the, if the re-speaking medical is bad, then I think it's definitely worth it to go this year and say, Hey, I shot 49% from three, you know, <laughs> I shot 49% from three and I can defend What more do you want? And the team takes him in the second, but I think unless there's some serious long-term concerns, if he's someone who, you know, as you said, tests the waters and the results he gets back are, yeah, probably mid to late second round at best, then I think it's probably worth it to return again, because he's, if he does return, he's almost certainly going to have a much bigger role next year. And ultimately if you're playing around, like, am I going to be an undrafted guy versus like the 53rd pick? might be worth taking that one more chance. The flip side of it, of course, as you mentioned, he's someone who's rapidly risen up boards this season. And, you know, if anything looks slightly different in a negative way, you know, down the stretch of this season, it could be the kind of thing where this is the peak in his value. And if he doesn't take that chance now, he might end up going undrafted. I don't know. It's a difficult calculus for him. Well, and it's only January and he's gone from not being talked about on big boards at all to being in the upper thirties. Right. So, or I'm sorry, the low, however you look at it, right. Like a, a high second round pick, right. Being a, in the low thirties. So again, at, Nick, I don't know how you feel about this, but at around 20 to 22, like there's not a lot of, there's some prospects that I like, but I don't feel firm in where I have players ranked, you know, 24 through, 44 for that matter right so there's a possibility that he keeps doing what he's doing and just kind of chronically rising without showing you know a whole lot of holes in his game while being an extremely valuable floor spacer and defender so i mean at the end of the day as a junior being able to do those things that might be enough to get him in that late first i mean not again i'm not putting any type of ceiling on him um for where i'm evaluating him now but if I had to slap a grade on him now, which I had to for our latest piece, I'm kind of in that mid to second round range where I could talk myself into him. All right. So before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to briefly talk about the subject of your previous weekend warrior article. Oh, so yeah. on this podcast feed, you can find Steven's exclusive interview with Brandon Prozemski of Santa Clara, but I wanted to circle back to him here a bit and talk about, him here as well because he's someone who is just such a complete offensive player Mm -hmm. that you know it makes it very easy to sort of see where he might end up and you know he's someone who you know (laughs) similar in a way to Beekman wasn't really on radars coming into the season and has really blossomed but particularly recently you know he's really sort of blown up stock wise so why don't we sort of circle back to the Pajemski talk here and, you know, the place to start with him, of course, is the shooting touch. Yeah, well, this, the shooting is is premier. Like, that's going to be his calling card. And when I interviewed him and I asked him to describe his game, you know, of course, you know, like most great players, he's going to talk about he can do everything, right? And he truly can. But when I tried to oppress him a little bit to say, like, what do you think your NBA level skill is right now? His first thing he said, well, obviously the passing, you know, like he was given the uh, Tyler Hero 2.0 uh, t- tag as he was getting ready to be drafted. And uh, even still, when he answered that shooting was going to be like his probably his best skill, he was also quick to refollow that up with like, hey, I can defend, which he can. He can rebound. He can pass like 
there's really nothing on the court that he can't do. And something that I love about what I'm seeing from him this year, Nick, is like, although technically he's a sophomore because he did play a very, you know, marginalized role on Illinois last year. This is really his first look at a uh, high usage role um, at in the WCC. And there's some pre, kind of preconceived notions I feel like people have with that conference. And I just think that people don't like to stay up for <laughs> on the East Coast where I am watching those games. But I mean, watch San Francisco play defense. Watch um, Pepperdine this year is like a, a potent offensive team. And Gonzaga is always in the conversation, right? So Pajemski is going up against some really high level um, college teams and he has risen to the occasion on, on all of them. You know, he played against, you know, Walter Clayton against Iona and a really good coach, Hall of Fame level coach and showed out in that game. So there's really no matchups that he's been in to where I feel like he hasn't been a threat and the shooting obviously is kind of like the foundation of what he can do. So the shooting is the foundation, definitely. But I do also want to touch on his attacking ability. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting to talk about that in context of the Reese Beekman discussion that we yep. just had. But where Beekman struggle, struggles to finish through contact and get himself to the rim, Przemski does not have that issue at all. And he's, you know, an exceptionally prolific free throw rate guy, which, yep. especially given how great his shooting touch is, you know, that's going to be particularly huge for him. He's someone who, you know, maybe isn't the... Elite, elite, you know, you mentioned Amen Thompson earlier, like the elite, elite athletes of the world, but he is more than good enough and he gets himself to the line at a high enough rate that that's the kind of skill that can translate for pretty much any player going to the NBA level. And it's a knock on Beekman's game and it's the exact opposite for Krzyzewski. Yeah. And what I like to, I spoke to it earlier, what I like to highlight free throw rate is that even though like, some guys have high free throw rates because they're just like supreme athletes. You mentioned them and Thompson type. Like there are just lightning quick players that can get to their spots and there's really nothing that anyone can do about it. They're supremely strong post players like a Jalen Duran and can finish with high efficiency. Or there's these slippery type players, right? Like Shea Gilgis Alexander was a, was a player that I really like to, I describe as being slippery. Uh, we talked about Tyrese Halliburton. He's not really an above the rim level athlete, but he was quick to get to his spots and knows how to use body positioning to his advantage. You know, Pajemski is that type of player to where he knows how to create advantages. You know, when I did his interview and I listened to other interviews that he did, um, because he's a lefty, he (laughs) grew up liking CJ Miles, who I thought was like a really interesting player for him to model his game after. But when I, beyond the left-handed similarities that they had, he really liked CJ because he could create separation, you know, for his size and athleticism, despite not being, um, you know, really vertical poppy, you know, quick twitch athlete or anything like that. Um, knowing how to use his body to his advantage and, you know, angles and how to use ball handling to his advantage as well. Pajemski does all of those things and his free throw rate really reflects that. So the other thing that I wanted to touch on here, and I really just want to sort of get your opinion on this, uh, in terms of his playmaking, it's solid for his position. Do you think it's good enough that it'll be a plus skill at the next level? Because I think that, you know, the shooting is one thing, but it would be really big for him if he can also get to the point where he's a plus passer. And I think he's okay, but I think there's definitely room for him to grow on that front. And I think that's the kind of thing where, you know, if he can develop as a playmaker, that'll really make it easier for him to find his way into an NBA rotation. I agree with you. And one thing that I kind of walked away with was how impressed I was for him to be in a role where he's trusted to be the guy, like the only guy, or I wouldn't say the only guy, right? Like there's contributors on this team, but he's the engine certainly to Santa Clara. And for him to be in that particular role for the first time, and high level of competition. I'm very impressed. And I think that there is room to grow. There is upside that he could even improve in that area. And again, he's a high level feel type of player. You know, when I was talking about those guys who can spray the ball from every angle, like he has such pristine court awareness and vision that there's really not a pass in the pick and roll that I wouldn't trust him to make. And I know the assist turnover ratio vultures might (laughs) not appreciate him as much as I do 
But again, context is key when evaluating a player. And when you watch, especially when you watch the film and considering Santa Clara doesn't have a single player who was ranked in their RSCI top 100 in their respective classes, whenever they were assessed, like Pajemski is the only one. And he was in probably one of the, the deepest RSCI classes in quite some time. Um, he is, he is showing a lot of growth. And again, his first time having such a role as what he has now, very encouraging to see. And the sky's the limit for him, man. Like I said, this is essentially his freshman year doing what he's doing. I, be- I believe when I wrote this, that he was only average, like he only averaged five minutes per game for Illinois. So that's not really a lot of time to do anything. And he even said himself that whenever he saw the floor during those five minutes, he was a floor spacer. So again, high usage ball handling role. First time seeing it, very encouraging. And with the work, the workman mentality that this guy has, he's a no-nonsense dude. He's a bring-your-lunch-pill-in-your-hard-hat-to-work, punch-the-time-clock-in-and-out, and, and uh, he has no plan B other than basketball. So I wouldn't bet against him getting even better at the next level, even though it's probably not going to be his day one um, you know, calling card. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a particularly hot take to say that he will have a smaller role at the NBA level than he's had at Santa Clara sure. this season, you know, especially early on. I mean, again, you know, you said it earlier with Beekman and my general take is I never want to put a ceiling on any of these players. You know, that's why we're no ceilings, right? We don't put ceilings on guys. There you go. But, you know, with, yeah, there we go. It's like, it's like the movie moment where they say the title, you know, that's. Look at the camera, like break the fourth yeah. wall type thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, but on a more serious note, I mean, the thing is his on-ball reps are huge for his development. Mm. And, you know, this is something that Metcalf and I used to talk about all the time with Devin Booker and Zach Levine as guys who yeah. they weren't primary ball handlers and you gave them the ball and, you know, for a while they were figuring it out. And sometimes it really wasn't pretty, but ultimately down the line, it was incredibly important for their development to have had the ball in their hands for those kinds of opportunities. And with Pajemski, the fact that he's, you know, able to be a high usage playmaker indicates that, you know, when he gets to the next level, he's, you know, not going to be the primary option, but if the ball touches his hands, he's not going to, you know, have no idea what to do with it. And, you know, what he mentioned with him being a four spacer at Illinois, you know, more and more over the past five, 10 years, we've seen players who don't do anything other than space the floor get sort of worked out of the NBA. Like there are no spots for Ryan Anderson's and Troy Daniels's anymore at the NBA level. And with Pajemski, the fact that he has gotten these on-ball reps is, you know, even if that's not going to be his primary role at the next level, his ability to handle those ball handling responsibilities in short spurts will make it a whole lot easier for him to find a fit in an NBA rotation. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I've talked about all the time is he's someone who can shoot and you rely on the shooting as a skill, but if that's all you can do, then it's going to be harder and harder and harder to get opportunities to, you know, be out there on the floor. And with Pajemski, he fills, he checks enough other boxes that I think it'll be easier for him to find his way into an NBA rotation than a number of other kind of players in a similar but different kind of archetype, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, it rarely ever works out that you draft a a role player in college to be a professional role player. Like, you see guys will typically have to scale their roles down a lot in order to be a high-end role player in the NBA. I mean, you're seeing it now in Sacramento with Keegan Murray, right? Like he did everything for, for Iowa last year. Right. And now because he knows what it's like to be um, an offensive engine hub, to be like a lockdown defender and being able to make crazy rotations. Like when you make his role more simplified, he excels because he's like all that energy that he expended everywhere else is now concentrated and harnessed and expelled into one, you know, direction. And it's just more potent when it happens like that. And I think that that's how Pajemski figures to do whenever he does decide to make the jump to the next level, because like you said, he, he's probably not going to be, you know, coming and looking to be James Harden or anything like that. Right. Where the entire (laughs) offense is predicated on his pick and roll ability. Right. But he can come in, he defends well at his position, right. He is, he's a bigger guard too, right. Like he's like six, five, six, six, um, significant amount of strength on the guy too, which always helps when you have that high divine strength advantage positionally that makes it feel like you have a higher chance of uh, succeeding. Right. And the shooting is there. 
you you can trust him to make a good read if he is chased off the line at the next level. You're you're not worried if he dribbles at all. Um, you're not worried about if he does attack and the defense collapse around him that he's not going to just chuck up a, an ugly shot. He's going to be able to use his high level of feel and court awareness to make a a good pass, right? And one thing that I love about what he's doing as I've watched him grow this year is that he's experimenting with that floater and it's a high arcing floater. It's quick. And something about a hierarchy quick floater is that that's easily masked as a lob and vice versa, right? So that can make his offensive game even a little bit more dynamic. I feel like when he kind of unlocks that, that might um, even unlock a little bit more potential that he can have as a ball handler at the next level. I'm really glad that you brought up Keegan Murray because I think he's a perfect example for the kind of thing that you're talking about with Pajemski. With Keegan Murray, he has gotten more opportunities with the ball in his hands in the last couple of weeks than he had, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the first half of the season. And I think that's really indicative for Pajemski because with Keegan Murray, you know, he got out there on the floor. He proved, okay, I can be a high level floor spacer. Right. And the first months of the season, his defense was really bad. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but yeah. it's been, you he's know, first of all, yeah, exactly. First of all, all rookies struggle defensively, but you know, and he's guarding NBA forwards. Like that's one of the yeah. toughest position groups to defend at in, in all of sports. A hundred percent. But you know, the idea being he got himself on the floor because he could space the floor. Right. And mm-hmm. then over the course of the first couple of months of the season, he figured out a lot of stuff on defense and he got to the point where he's a much better defender than, yeah. you know, the last couple weeks in particular, he's, been involved in handoff actions with Demonis Sabonis more than he had been at any point earlier in the season. And, you know, basically a lot of that boils down to, all right, you've proven that you can be our floor spacer. You've proven that you're, you know, putting in the effort and really growing on defense. Now you get a little bit more chances to do other things. You get a little bit yeah. more chances to play make. You get a little bit more opportunity with the ball in your hands to rather than just purely be a spot up guy, you know, try and drive through and create contact, see what you can do. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when Pajemski does make the jump, you know, I'm not going to say he's Keegan Murray for obvious reasons, but I mean, you know, the, I think the principle of it can be the same of you get out there because you're a great shooter. You prove that you can be a great shooter. Okay, great. We're going to keep a little bit more defensive responsibility your way. Let's see how you handle that. Okay, great. You're getting adjusted to the defense. Let's see what you can do with the ball in your hands a little bit more, you know? And it's, a steady sort of developmental path that is unlocked by you have that baseline shooting skill. And if you can do other things at a high enough level, then we can, you know, increase the responsibility that we're giving to you. And, you know, again, that's the kind of thing that I could definitely see Pashemsky doing where he gets onto the floor with his shooting and then he proves enough else that he stays there. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is that I'm, I'm sure it didn't escape anybody in Sacramento, the film that he put on at Iowa. Right. So you, you have like, you have a full catalog of what this guy was capable of at a different level. And you start seeing that, okay, he had that NBA level skill set that he could hang his hat on, right? That's what gets your foot in the door. Once you get your foot in the door and you start building some equity with the coaching staff and your teammates, and I'm sure he's probably more comfortable now to where as the season, like from where he started in practice as a, as a rookie, probably not wanting to make any waves. I don't know. Like I don't have any insight or anything like that, but I could imagine that being a young man going to the next level, you can have as much confidence in yourself as you want. Like there's no league like the NBA. So you you don't know any of the processes that take place. Once you make that jump, you're probably not looking to make as many waves. Now that you're getting trusted in a little bit more, you're probably starting to feel a little bit more comfortable and confident. He's probably showing more in practice now than what he did say day one, Nick, in, in terms of, probably not worrying as much about making mistakes or playing outside of the role that was asked of him. And having that confidence being instilled in him from the coaching staff, from the players and teammates, I'm sure that that makes him want to kind of show a little bit more and having that confidence to play next to a DeMontis Sabonis, who is an incredible playmaking big man, by the way, um, that gives the team so much lineup versatility when you have your four and your five, um, depending on their rotation, I'm sure they can slide up to the three and the four respectively, but showing that level of versatility, um, kind of opens the door a little bit. Pajemski can do the same thing, whether he's on the ball, whether he's off the ball, he's very comfortable in either role. Um, he showed the capability on a very small role and limited minutes to be an off the ball player. Now he's showing 
with a significantly like 80% minutage percentage for Santa Clara this year, Nick, like that's, it's hard to get to that level in college basketball. Yeah. Even, even some star players who have been in the program for a long time. I mean, heck, Reese Beekman was like around the 65 percentile on the time that I, that I wrote this, um, you know, he's showing that despite whatever his role is, he can be effective. And that's what my, my cats are going crazy. I'm sorry, but that's what can get your foot in the door in the NBA is having that, um, that skill and then being able to show the rest of your game. And Pajemski has a lot more to offer than shooting. And I think that that can really bear out depending on the team that uh, he goes to. If he's fortunate enough to get a, a Mike Brown as a coach. There we go. All right. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? Do your cats or children have anything to contribute before we close this one out? You're, you've got to see almost like the full zoo here that I have going on. So I appreciate <laughs> you putting up with me, man. But um, oh, of course, no, man, I'm just I'm excited. I have um, words coming this upcoming Sunday for the weekend warrior. I'm going to be diving into another player that I have uh, my own you know, reservations about Nicola, where I'm sure I'm not alone in that front. And I'm going to be diving deep on some on some film this week and uh, just looking forward to continuing to uh, evaluate these prospects and the more big projects that we have coming on on No Ceilings, man. I'm excited. It's a it's a fun time to be a part of the team. Absolutely. And I am very much looking forward to reading that Kalel Ware article because he is endlessly confusing and it'll be, yes. it'll be great to take a look at your thoughts once you've sort of done the deep dive on him. I'm going to be comparing his situation to some other um, kind of curious cases that despite not being in the best situation or being utilized probably to the role that we were expecting coming into the year, some players that got drafted um, pretty high. So maybe this should be, maybe this piece can serve for myself and hopefully for others as a way to kind of temper where we're seeing the productivity and the things that we're not excited about now based on high school film and preseason projection. All right. Well, he is Stephen Glaspie. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops. And you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsMBA.com. Be sure to read his Reese Beekman and Brandon Pajemski articles if you haven't yet. And also, of course, check out Stephen's exclusive Pajemski interview right here on the No Ceilings MBA podcast feed. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find all of my written work on No Ceilings MBA as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you're using. That is always much appreciated on our end. And if yes. you have any feedback on the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.